It's recording. All right. Hello, everyone. Cordell Davenport here with Small Apartment Investors. And uh, this is my second go around where I'm bringing across someone who can be very beneficial to you and I. And I said before is that my vision of coming up with these shows is not just to let me find somebody. Let me find somebody new. Let me find somebody new. I want to have a core focus of people who really know what they're doing that can be able to teach and have a message to say. And so once again, those people are going to be a real estate agent. I mean, a real estate agent, a real estate attorney, uh, a mortgage broker, a property manager, and a real estate attorney. Did I say that? I think I screwed him up. Yep. No, you did. Yeah. A real estate but, um, attorney. You got it. Yeah. So anyhow, so what, what I try to do, my ultimate goal, uh, everyone is to own and manage a small apartment portfolio. Um, and it's, it's funny that I, I met Fernando is like, I am kind of following his steps, not knowing I'm following his steps. I listened to an interview with him learned some stuff about him, got him on Instagram and listened to his messages. And so a lot of things that I'm trying to do is as I learn, you guys all learn. And um, on smallapartmentinvestors.com, I have this free ebook, have your family living expenses covered by small apartments you own. And guess what? That's my goal. And I know that if anything, it's all about mindset. So mindset plus skill set plus performance equals results. And when it comes to property management, that's a huge portion of skill set. There's a lot to know and a lot to learn. So what I'm going to do um, is going to read his, his little brief bio and we're going to learn some more about uh, his, his message, uh, his tactics, and how we can all benefit. So Francis bought his first income property in 2003 with no formal training or experience in real estate. By 2006, he started a property management business that grew to operate $40 million in residential multifamily and represented prestigious clients such as Wells Fargo, California National Bank, and U.S. Bank. He is the author of a trademark book titled Job Plus Real Estate Equals Wealth. I have that book, FYI, that serves as a guide on how to invest in multifamily properties while working full time. Today, after selling his property management business, Francis is a sought after real estate coach and speaker that helps new and seasoned real estate investors start and grow their portfolios. He also helps real estate agents become authority figures in their community by creating sales funnels that nurture and convert into sales. Francis also works at auction.com, the largest marketplace of distressed real estate. He coordinates and helps the auctioning of foreclosed properties. Francis is a graduate of University of Buffalo. We earned his Bachelor of Science and Master of Science in Electrical and Computer Engineering Francis is a dad of two incredible sons, a husband, a yogi and fitness enthusiast, and lives in Buffalo, New York, where it's cold. And I'm in California, where it's about 80. Oh, man. I know. And it's <laughs> getting colder. Every day that goes by, it's getting colder. Although this week, we do have a nice, warm, warm week. So uh, very much like your warm welcome here, Cordell. I appreciate right. that. Thank you. All right. So we can, you know, I, we, we read, I just read the bio, but... What else is it about you, like your story? Because it's a unique story, and I know that you didn't plan this route 
from right. I know your your background more than other people. So why don't you uh, break it down? Sure, sure. I'll uh, I'll break it down, uh, Cordell, by sort of talking about my mantra, right? And mantras don't come in as part of who you are as a being. I mean, there are I guess there are certain mantras about your personality that you hang tight to, like your values. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm going to step away from values for a second and talk a little bit about. Um, the journey, and then I'll tie it back into what my actual journey is. But my mantra as it pertains to real estate is, um, I call it hashtag how much will I make, right? And the reason for that is it sounds like it's driven purely on how much money I will make. And yes, that is a component, but it's more a higher level look into it saying, if I am going to get involved in real estate, uh, or if I'm going to get involved in a business, or if I'm going to get in involved in any kind of entrepreneurial endeavor, am I looking back and breaking that transaction and that deal apart from the infrastructure, right? So from an infrastructure perspective, do I have what it takes to take care of or uh, and uh, get into that endeavor? Right? Uh, can I facilitate that with the current status and, and current uh, involvements that I'm doing right now with my family involvements, with my current job? Can I actually take that on? Or am I getting into a headache where I'm going to get involved and then like blow up because I just can't logistically take care of it? And the reason that's important to me is because as I look back at my journey, I went through those kind of situations. I had a job, I got involved in real estate, and I logistically blew up a little bit in my real estate portfolio because I didn't have the infrastructure to take care of those. Mm -hmm. So as I look back, you know, they say, um, um, you know, hindsight 2020, right? Mm -hmm. I look back and I go, wow, I wish I knew what I know today, I wish I knew that when I got into real estate. Um, and so that's really what the mantra is. So it's not as much as it sounds like it's all about making money. Really that hashtag, how much will I make is really how much of, of how much do I know is my brain going to learn by getting involved in this? Okay. So that's, oh yeah. And then, and then I'm going to tie it into a little bit of my journey. So really, really at a high level, uh, I'm an engineer by profession. I became an engineer because my come from a, a family of engineers. My dad was an engineer. We traveled around the globe. Uh, my dad worked in various mines, uh, copper mines in Central Africa, um, wow. Southeast Asia, and then eventually in Canada. And then, you know, I moved to the US. So that was sort of in my blood. Uh, engineer, but I always say I was an engineer up here, not down here. Mm -hmm. um, I think I had the want and desire to become a business person or, or an entrepreneur, but I didn't really know how to do it. So my first kind of leap into it, my first formal, I had a few informal leaps into business, but my first formal leap into business as it pertains to real estate was in 2003, I had moved from Buffalo, New York to New Hampshire. My, my nine to five job, I was, a, I was an engineer at Verizon. My nine to five job moved me out to New Hampshire and uh, I loved the area. Uh, there was something unique about that area. It was a little bit north of Boston, 
real estate prices were a tad bit cheaper than the big metropolis of mm -hmm. Boston. So all your investors were coming from Boston, unable to buy in Boston and buying up north in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. And uh, at the time, I found it attractive to buy real estate. So I was buying, I was using my corporate cash, saving it up. And I was always one to buy assets. You know, I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and uh, mm. I had learned the difference between an asset versus a liability. And that was kind of a, you know, wake up moment for me. So I was using that money buying assets, which my choice was larger apartment buildings, but larger per, it's actually, sorry, per the definition of, of your show, it's smaller. So mm. uh, it's not the single families and it's not the two families, but I was more attracted to the five to six to eight unit. That was my sweet spot. So actually I will redefine that smaller apartment complexes. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, and that's what I was doing. I was buying up smaller apartment complexes. I got to a point where I had 22, uni 20, 22 units. My portfolio size has changed here and there. 22 units. And um, I got logistically stuck and I'll expand on that later as we get into the show, but logistically stuck in the sense, couldn't manage my job and I couldn't manage the, the assets. So I decided to take a leap of faith and go, you know, my first entrepreneurial venture outside of buying the real estate was to start a property management company to manage those assets. You need to be a real estate agent in that area to be a property manager? Yeah, yeah. So the, it's, uh, you know, depending on the on the state and the local ordinance, uh, for, for the most part, most instances, if you're managing third party money, so if you're managing your own assets, or if you're working for one individual, you don't need a license. But if you're if you're co-locating, uh, which you shouldn't be co-locating, uh, co-mingling funds, mm -hmm. but if you're managing multiple funds uh, for, for various different owners, then yes, you do need a real estate license. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, when you were saying something in the beforehand about your mantra and everything and how much you want to make, and I was thinking, it's like, um, it, to me, uh, success is to know what you want and to get it. Yeah. And so what is it you want? So whatever it is you want. So a person can say, well, I want to buy this. I want to buy that. Or a person may say, you know, I have a kid and I don't, I want, I need money for college or my IRA right now sucks. I need some money or I'm just tired of working or whatever it may be. So we, we do certain things. We strive for certain things because of, of what it gives us. We all know that money is just a, a vehicle. Money is yeah. important, but what is it is going to give you? What's the end result? And I think a lot of it boils down to time, free time to, to yeah. pick and choose what you want to do. So I'm sorry. I just want to, no, and that's important, you know, and in fact, you know, I, I like that you said that because for me, it is, it was time until, and it still is, right? Because I do value my time very, very much so. Um, but I heard something that was really recently that was interesting. Uh, it was, I was speaking to a young lady and she said, you know, I asked her why she was getting into real estate. So I do some coaching for people that are trying to get into real estate. Um, and I do some coaching on people that are trying to build, they've already got real estate, but they're trying to build up their property management companies. So this particular young lady was getting into real estate. 
She had a really good job. So she was really clear on what she wanted to do. She had trimmed her liabilities over the last you know, 12 months uh, so that she could free up capital and mm -hmm. didn't have too much expenses. Uh, and she was ready to take that leap of faith. So I asked her the basic question. I said, so why is it that you want to get into real estate? And her why was, she said, Francis, I'm always so shocked that every generation has to start from scratch. Uh, she's just recently married, and I think she's about to have kids or probably close in the, in the mm -hmm. near future, she will be having kids. And so it could be a thought in her, in her mind of, hey, why does every generation need to start from scratch? And she, doesn't, she wants to break that cycle in her family and be able to create generational wealth that she can pass down to her children who can hopefully pass it down to their children. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the beauty with real estate. It's one of those transferable assets that just Correct. keeps living and living and giving. Yeah. And it's unfortunate, you know, sometimes for people uh, like myself who grew up in the inner city, uh, parents didn't have anything. Mm -hmm. and, and there is, it's good. They call it long money, you know, where it's generational. And, but if you grew up in an area where um, your parents didn't own a home, or they were always renters. There's nothing transferring. There's no life inheritance. And it's right. if we can have a whole different discussion about generational wealth, you know, sometimes we can look at back in the civil rights days where they called it redlining, where you couldn't get a property because, you know, you were, you were, you were black, you were Latino, you were whatever maybe, And yeah. then you just get blackballed. So I don't want to deviate because I have a habit of deviating sometimes. Oh, no, that's um, good, though. From, that's good. <laughs> but I think that, no, it's true. So it all points down to, okay, what is it that you guys want? What do I want? What do you guys want? So right. good. So I have uh, Francis on to talk about today about physical due diligence, everyone. But before uh, we start talking about that, did I interrupt you on your line of thought, Francis? No, no, not at all. I'm all ready right. to jump into the okay. content. And yeah, absolutely. So everyone, when it comes to buying apartments, there is a lot of due diligence that needs to happen. There's financial due diligence. They look at leases, look at the rent rolls, look at the T12s, the trailing T trailing 12 months. You have to look at market due diligence and understanding what's, what's the norm. But when it comes to physical due diligence, that's a whole different ball game. You know, it's, it's involved with HVAC roofers. Um, and the thing about with Francis, because he's been doing it, um, he hopefully can share some, some insights of like top five things that we should always be aware of when we're buying a property. And I've heard of times where if I want to buy an apartment, Either I can hire a property management and say, well, okay, when I pick up this property, you're going to manage it. Once you come do the due diligence with us, I've heard where someone just says, okay, I'm going to find a general contractor and then have them walk. I've heard where people outsource to third parties. But the problem that I see that I've encountered because my niche is 50 units and less, a lot of people go for the big bucks. They don't really go over 50 or they go a hundred. Um, I I was listening to a um, a seminar, and it was a guy, a nice guy, gave a good presentation on due diligence, and uh, and he his company take, takes pictures and does all kind of things. But 
But because my niche is 50 units or less, he's not going to even touch it. He's not going to touch it, right. So that means that how do people who have 50 units and less, how do they get around or what should they do when it comes to doing the physical due diligence on a property they want to buy? Right, right. So if a critical question, and, and before I even jump into that, um, you know, you said that there's that sort of middle of the market, you know, the 50 units and below, and that's sort of the untapped market. And this is a call out to all entrepreneurs that see those kind of opportunities, right? So typically, when you look at real estate, the, the largest size properties, whether it's due diligence, property management, uh, or, or any aspect of servicing those mm-hmm. 50 units and greater, there are, I call it the big boys and the big girls that are going to service those, right? And then the really small ones are either self-managed or the portfolio size is small enough where it may not make financial sense for you to even get involved in that. But there's that sweet spot where most people don't get involved in, Right. Mm-hmm. And if you can figure out how to create business within that sort of untapped market, right, that is, you know, it's a call out to all entrepreneurs that look in that sweet spot because there's not a heck of a lot of competition. It's exactly what I did in Manchester, New Hampshire, is there was a sweet, sweet spot of third party real estate, uh, third party property managers. Most people didn't want to manage other people's real estate, especially for residential. Right. So, and it was that sweet spot of that underrepresented market. And I said, wow, there's an opportunity there. It's tough. It's really tough. But how can I get into it and make and, and profit from that? So, that's just kind of my, my entry into that. I'm going to touch a little bit on all due diligence, but I'll focus a little bit heavier on the Go physical ahead. due diligence. Sure. Right. Um, and the, the, the reason is I, I, I kind of flows for me, the entire due diligence, because I think a lot of times when people see properties, they get, they get hung up on, you know, how do I, how do I buy this? Um, and they'll spend so much time on the, on the spreadsheets, analyzing it. And by the time they go to buy or put an offer on the property, either it's sold or they make an offer, which is, which doesn't make sense, right? So I'm going to go all the way right to the start. First step of due diligence for me is financial pro forma, right? So I'm going to run a financial pro forma on the asset. Now, that whole section is a whole separate discussion, right? I'll give you the basic elements of a financial pro forma. How much is that asset going to make? Right. So you're simply going to have, and there's pro formas that you can get. Uh, I have a pro forma, reach out to me. I'm sure, uh, Cordell, you have a version of, uh, of a pro forma. Bigger Pockets has versions of pro formas. Essentially, in a nutshell, a pro forma is your income and your expenses. Right. And then certain key ratios like cap rates, cash on cash return, debt service coverage ratio. So there's some really important ratios um, that's going to tell you what the property is going to perform like. So pro forma is a is a, sounds like a complicated word. All it says is all it stands for is projected performance, not real performance projected performance. So it's your first step into saying, hey, is it even worth doing physical 
due diligence on this, right? We want to be disciplined investors. So we want to do our first step being financial pro forma. I want to just evaluate this. Think of a funnel. This is the top of the funnel. I'm filtering out anything that doesn't make financial sense to me. Mm. So super important to do that. It's going to tell you based on what kind of returns you want. This is a good asset. One more thing on the financial performance that I'll, I'll kind of end on that is a lot of times, it's a philosophical question. A lot of times people, uh, you know, will look at a property and there's a sale price on it. Let's just say it's, a, it's an open property on the market. Let's say it's on MLS. It's an active listing on MLS. And I'm going to make fictitious numbers here, Cordell. The sale price is $250,000. Most of the time as buyers, we're looking at that, we're running our pro forma on $250,000 and then we're basing our offer on $250,000 or a function thereof, right? I'm going to offer this much less than two fifty, dollars mm. right? But we're not offering it based on the performance of the uh, pro forma. So super important to understand is that whenever I do a financial performa, I don't care what they're asking for. I, I don't even base it on the asking price. Yeah, you're right. Because when you buy commercial property, you're buying a business. Exactly. Unlike a residential, oh, it, it's listed for $100,000. i am going to offer 33% less and just whatever it is and let them fly. But no, right. you're buying numbers or you're buying a business. That's why you have to go in detail. I'm right. sorry. Go ahead. And this is no, I'm perfect. And this is where it takes the emotion out. If there's a real estate agent involved in this transaction, right, it can get kind of sticky because the agent's going to push to get the highest price on that, whether it's whether it's a buyer's agent or a seller's agent, right? Their primary motive is to make sure that the property sells and, and, and rightfully so. That's their job, right? Mm -hmm. Is to get maximum price. So when, when it takes the emotion off, when you give an offer immaterial of the asking price, because you're saying, hey, my offer is based on the performance of this asset and the, the, the financial viability to me as a purchaser, mm -hmm. right? And you know, take no offense to the offer that I'm gonna make. So mm -hmm. that's step one for me. Um, the second step was the physical. So it's more about what we're talking about here is the physical. If it passes that litmus test of the financial viability, then I'm going to do a physical um, inspection. So I do a couple of different physical inspections. The first one is obviously just a drive through. Uh, but once I've gone through and it's kind of checked off the location, the access to schools, depending on the type of building. So if it's uh, if I'm in the B slash C range, that's the market that I want to be in from a renter perspective. Then I'm going to make sure it's you know within all the facilities of what is needed for a B slash C property. If my if my intent is to take it from a like doing a reposition, so I'm saying I'm taking a C property and I want to make it a B, am I in a B location, right? Like am I taking a C property and bringing it into a B physical asset, but I also want to be make sure I'm in a B location from the perspective of schools you know, access to mm -hmm. amenities and all of that. So I'll do my quick sanity check on that, uh, do a physical drive-through. But now when I'm going into my actual physical inspection, um, I'm wearing a couple of different hats, right? So the first hat is my, I call it my, uh, my basically my contractor hat, 
right? I'm walking the asset looking for deferred maintenance, mm -hmm. right? So is there anything in this property that in the next five to 10 years, one year, whatever your timeframes are, that are going to be exhausted. In other words, they're at the life expectancy or they're at their maximum life expectancy. So of course, the main mechanicals, right? The roof, the windows, the, the HVAC systems, and, uh, and then I will do a physical walkthrough of the units too. Because if the units are, uh, you know, are in, in decent shape, you know, from a visual perspective, but if I get into the internal, you know, internal guts of the apartment and I'm looking at, you know, really old plumbing, uh, really old toilets, really old tub surrounds, then I know when those tenants move out, right, my rehab cost is going to be that much more. My unit turn costs are going to be that much more. So I'm looking for um, uh, deferred maintenance. That's my first, first, first thing. Um major mechanicals. That's my second thing. Uh, then after I've worn that hat, my, my contractor hat, I'm then going to wear my, elect, my, my um, insurance uh, auditor hat, right? I'm going to pay Are you Mr. by yourself during this process or do you have a team with you? Usually I'm by myself. Yeah. Okay. Usually I'm by myself. I will take a, I will take a maintenance contractor with me, you know, usually my own, when I ran my own team, I had my maintenance contractor with me. Um, on occasion, if it's a property that I'm a little questionable about, I may take my insurance agent to depending on my relationship with my insurance agent. Um, so I might, might actually take my insurance agent, but okay. I've been schooled enough to know what to look for. So I'll wear my insurance hat and now I'm going to walk the property from the perspective of an insurance uh, agent, right? Because mm -hmm. typically what happens is when you close on a property, you're going to get a binder for insurance. Usually 30 to 60 days after the closing, when it's multifamily housing, 30 to 60 days after the closing, the insurance is company, the insurance company is going to send an inspector to do a physical inspection of the property to make sure that it's in compliance with what they're underwriting. Okay. And if they start seeing things, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, they see knob and tube wiring, right? Uh, or they see fuse panels, right? They're going to write recommendations on your, not, not even recommendations, they're actually going to write non-compliance items uh, as a checklist of, corrections that need to be made if not they're going to drop your insurance or they're going to jack your insurance rates up significantly up right so you want to go through from an insurance perspective and look like how an insurance inspector is going to look at that property so i'm looking for knob and tube wiring i'm looking for electrical um, fuse boxes i'm looking for old plumbing uh, you know, old uh, cast iron plumbing um, and anything that's antiquated where an insurance agents going to be, you know, slip and then the slips and falls and all that. So a question I have is, so would the uh, insurance company give you like a form, you fill it out once you go to the property, give it back to them and then they'll give you a quote on, on what it would cost to insure it possibly? Or how does uh, that... There yeah. So on the initial, they usually just get an address on the initial, on the initial mm -hmm. for, for closing purposes, they're going to give you an initial, they may have a questionnaire for you, like uh, what kind of electrical, right? And you're just simply answering those, right? right. So okay. you might get coverage and you'll get bound coverage, but it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's contingent upon a 60 day walkthrough uh, of an insurance inspector. 
right. right? Okay. So yeah. once the inspector goes through and says, oh, wait a minute, you know, no, no, no. this is not what we thought it was, right? There's a buried oil tank. There is um, knob and tube wiring. There is, you know, antiquated facilities. We've got to, we've got to re-up on these or you've got to correct these. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, that's, uh, you know, my next step on the physical inventory is going through wearing my insurance hat. My third is to make sure that I do a inspection of the inventory, right? So uh, a lot of times when you buy, let's just say you're buying a four family, the listing agreement is going to say four family, four bathrooms, your four apartments, four bathrooms, four refrigerators, four dishwashers, and it's going to have a listing of all the equipment that you're going to ultimately own at the transaction of this right. uh, sale. I am going to walk through because I am ultimately buying those four refrigerators, four dishwashers. For I want to make sure that you know I'm looking at mm -hmm. serial numbers, I'm looking at ages of those products, uh, and I'm looking at relative condition of those, right? Um, are they near the end of life? And if you're in there looking at those and it's an occupied unit, then likely you're going to be able to hit up a lot of other things, which I'm going to get into next, which is speaking to the tenants. Hey, have you had any, have you had any issues with this refrigerator? Oh yeah, this is the fourth time I've called the landlord. You know, this thing keeps going out or my, it keeps leaking. And that's why you, if you go downstairs, you're going to see leaks on the unit below. Right, it starts opening up the, the quote unquote can of worms, but this is a good can of worms because you want to know this as a buyer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So, from a physical standpoint, that's what I'm looking at. Uh, if I get really into depth uh, or I'm questionable about certain things, then I will get like an engineer in there. If there's certain things about the basement that I'm not liking, uh, foundation issues, or I see lolly columns you know, sort of recently put up there, uh, I may have some concerns with, you know, settling basements or settling subfloors. So I may get people in there for that. But for the most part, if everything looks fairly good, um, that's, that's it on a, on a physical inspection. And then let's say that you do your physical inspection and you say, man, all these damages, uh, you go back to the seller and say, hey, you going to give me credit on this? Or you going to let's work something out? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm gonna I'm gonna write all of those down. You know, I'm taking copious notes as I'm going through this inspection, right? Um, and my copious notes are going to then translate into, you know, how does this affect the overall deal? Is this something that hey, this is part of my offer? This was part of my original pro forma when I ran the pro forma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I knew this was going to be part of it. And then, of course, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, sort of from a market perspective, you know, is this something that I can absorb or is this property going to sell with these conditions uh, at that price, right? If it's going to sell with the, so for example, property is listed at 250 and that's a pretty good going uh, market or properties are selling at 270, right? So 250 is like right within W w mm -hmm. below market. But I know, hey, the reason it's 20,000 below market is because also it needs a new roof, which is 15 grand. So the owner was smart enough to, you know, uh, to accommodate for that. Right. In, and it's reflective in his asking price. So I'm going to do a quick sort of sanity check on that. Um, but I'm taking copious notes and I'm going to translate those copious notes into a dollar. 
per gotcha. line item. Mm-hmm. You gotcha. know? Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm going to separate out uh, my my capital work, right? So these are immediate capital expenses that need to be taken care of. And I'll break those up into, I call it life safety versus long-term improvements. And then I'm going to look more into like beautification, co- common hallways need to be painted, that kind of stuff, oh, gosh. routine yeah. maintenance. And that's all part of pro forma anyway, typically you probably put yeah. that in there. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when I make my offer, uh, a lot of times I will include that. I'll include a pro forma in my offer so that I'm not offending anyone. And I'll include my breakout of, I usually don't do the breakout of repairs right up front, but I'll, I'll do step one. I'll do my offer. If I get kicked back, then I'll say the reason for my offer is boom. And I'll include my pro forma. And oh, by the way, if you want to know further detail, it's because of, and I'll take my copious notes and say, just so you know, I mean, I did observe that your roof is leaking and I'm not here to buy a leaking roof. I'm here to buy an asset that's producing income. Hashtag how much will I make? Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, that roof needs to be replaced. All right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm just quit. You're fine. Yeah, my next one, and these kind of like all mesh in together, is after the physical inspection, I'm going to do an occupancy inspection. All right. All right. So my occupancy inspection is who is my tenant base, right? I want to meet all my tenants, right? I want to meet all of my tenants. I want to see all the tenant leases. This is this is a big part of what people miss is the, the uh, expiration dates of leases, Mm. right? I took over a 12 unit building in Manchester, New Hampshire. The owner bought it. It was 12 or 18 unit building. The owner bought it within six months of owning the building. And there was a lot of capital work that he had accounted for, but within 12 months, uh, six months of closing the building, the building went 50% vacant. And had he gone through and just done due diligence on the leases and even just one within the leases, just one aspect of the lease. And that one aspect is, what is the expiration date of the leases? Had he focused on that, he would have seen, holy crow, you know, 50% of my leases come due within six months of me buying this building, right? This is an expense that I didn't anticipate because now not only do you have lost income for them moving out, you have rehab fees for each mm-hmm. of those units, and then you have releasing fees to your property management company to release those. Problems. Yes, <laughs> yes. So I'm going to do tenant leases. I'm going to I'm going to meet my tenant base, speak to them. It's unbelievable what you learn from people when you speak to them. You know, a simple question like, "Hey, Cordell, yes, everything good at the apartment?" No, that's all, you know, that's, that's yeah. all I need to say. And it's just going to blow up into a conversation on, well, you know, not really. Or, well, you know, I've been telling the landlord about this. And, you know, so it just, it, you know, it explodes into a great conversation. Yeah. Um, and I'm also going to look at pending lawsuits. Are there any lawsuits? Are there any, um, you know, potential lead issues? You know, lead laws are pretty hefty. Are there kids in the building? Is there an ongoing lead inspection or lead violation? Um, is there an eviction proceeding? If there is there delinquencies in rent? Is there behavior-based evictions? I'm going to ask tenant one how tenant two behaves. I'm going to ask tenant two how tenant one is, and I'm going to do my cross-functional look. Do they, um, when they're selling, do they have to say if they have Section 8 tenants? 
as you're doing your review? Yeah, it's going to, it's typically going to state it on your rent roll. It's going to say the source of income. So a lot of times they will say section eight uh, okay. and the source of the income. Yeah. Okay. And, and the lease will typically say it too. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to ask for a tenant file. Um, for each of the, each of the tenants, I, I do review the file to look at any vouchers that are coming in from, because also if you go historically, even if they're not on section eight, there could have been periods of time where the tenant fell into trouble and they needed some form of government assistance to bail them out. So I'm going to look and see if those, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. People, good people get into trouble. Uh, but I just want to know histor historically, has this tenant been employed or have they had periods where they've lost their job? Is it seasonal work where, you know, typically in the wintertime, they don't, have, they're out of work and they're, you know, they're on some form of government assistance. So I want to mm -hmm. just know all that. Wow. It's like a, a person really needs to have a, a good checklist. Oh, absolutely. To make absolutely. sure nothing gets Skip, go ahead. Yeah, and then my final one is verification. So I'm going to run through these again. First is financial performa. Second is physical inspection. Third is the occupancy. And my final one is, I call it verification. And this is where I go, it's a phrase that I love. Uh, it's trust, but verify, mm -hmm. right? When someone says, hey, Francis, you don't trust me? Oh, no, I trust you. I trust you, but I verify right? So uh, when you verify, you're just keeping an honest person honest. Yes. Right? And that's, that's my, my, you know, I, I like to be verified upon because I want to make sure that I'm doing my work and anyone checking upon me, I love the fact that they will verify what I'm doing because it keeps me on, it keeps me as an honest person. It keeps me honest and honorable right. to my, to my role. Um, so on the verification, I'm just going to give you a few ideas on, on verification. Bank deposits. Okay. So typically, if a person is organized with their real estate asset, they're going to have a separate bank account for that asset, or they might have uh, multiple assets, but they're going to have one bank account for those multiple assets, mm -hmm. right? I would hope that people are like that, and they're not commingling rents with their own personal accounts and all that. Um, if that is the case, it's a great way to verify the stated income. So if they're saying, hey, my monthly rents are that I'm getting on this building is 3,000 a month, right? Or 36,000 if we're annualizing it, 36,000 a year, it's not hard to ask for uh, copies of bank receipts, uh, uh, deposit slips, bank receipts, or access to uh, the bank statements, and they can black out the account yeah, okay. numbers. Yeah. And you just want to say, hey, if it's 3000 a month, how come I'm not seeing 3000 a month? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, Cordell, you're going to get people that say, well, it's really complicated. <laughs> well, not really. It's a, it's a rent check that comes from a tenant, and you go to the bank and you deposit it. And you're yeah. going to get a deposit slip. That's that's as that's as complicated as it gets. Mm -hmm. So verify the uh, the expenses, the income, and on the same bank account, you can verify the. Do you go back like ninety days? Like how far do you go back? I'll go back 12, 12 months. Twelve months, all right? Yeah, I'll go back. I'll ask. I'll ask for twelve months because it's fairly easy to do a quick sanity check. Because then I can get a trend. Um, a lot of times I do get pushback from that, from bank statements. A lot of people are uncomfortable with getting bank statements. So I will put it as a contingency in my, my PNS, right? Okay. Contingent upon 
bank statements, or if I can't absolutely get bank statements because they're co-mingling, there's a lot of owners that kind of ran it old, old school. They have Especially the mom Excel. and pops. Yeah. Yeah. And they just kind of put it into their own checking account. Then I'll ask for tax returns. Schedule E. Yeah. Schedule E return. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can, you can track the, you can verify not only your income, but also your expenses. So you can look at all the checks that are being written out and just cross correlate that with the, your pro forma. Okay. Uh, and then one more check that I do is uh, on any utility expenses that they state, I'm going to do a quick phone call to the utility companies, um, get the account number and just say, Hey, what's been the average uh, water usage at this building, here's the account number. Uh, and if I don't have permission to do it, I'll have them, you know, have me on the call and make that phone call. Oh, so okay. I'm not an easy, uh, I'm not an easy yeah. buyer. Uh, I'm not an easy, easy purchaser. I'm not, uh, I'm not very much liked by the sellers, but where, where I don't mess around Cordell is that once I've gone through those, I make the financial transaction really easy. All right. You know, makes sense. Um, all right well i have a question like I, I know there has to be people out there i know you mentioned earlier you um you provide coaching and things like that but what if someone uh, wants to buy a, a small apartment but they need some hand holding on the due diligence process does your services include that or is it how does or is it you teach them how or you you know i'm going to be right there with you making sure everything is you know a-okay yeah, yeah. So a lot of what I do, Cordell, is, you know, sort of my kind of three tiers of what I do is the first tier that I that I offer is, hey, if you're get if you're new and you're getting into real estate, I've created resources, right? The first resource being the job plus real estate equals wealth book. Mm -hmm. Right. I also have that as a bundle with uh, with an online video course, right? And it is a soup to nuts course. Um, the 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 course sort of encompasses. I took the fifteen years of managing over forty million dollars worth of real estate. So I get into depth with, you know, due diligence, how to analyze properties, what type right. of properties to buy, where to buy, you know, how to negotiate with people, how to surround yourself with the success teams. Um, and I give copies of the pro forma. It's my own version of a pro forma. So it, it, everything is in that. And mm -hmm. so that's sort of my entry level. You know, you get the book and that program. The next level is if you, uh, if you wanted to customize a solution with me, like I have a client now that is a, he flips high end, you know, one to $2 million homes in Massachusetts. The agreement or the, the, the work that I'm doing with him is he's not getting enough of an inflow of properties. Mm -hmm. So I've created a funnel for him and I've created sort of a marketplace for him that people know if they're selling a high-end property in the seacoast or the, the uh, south shore of Massachusetts, he is the guy because he's well, uh, he's well um, uh, not leveraged, he's well uh, financed right? Okay. He's liquid, right? He's wealth, he's, he's, he's got cash in hand, uh, and he's able to move rapidly on an acquisition. So I'll work with someone like that on a, on, on a strategy. So the point being that anyone who's got a very specific strategy, 
right? And that's what's super important. If they're very specific on what they want to do. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, Francis, I am, I'm thinking I want to get this. As soon as I hear that, I know they're not sure exactly what they want to do. <laughs> Put them in your thing. funnel. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? You, you're probably likely better off reading the book, getting some clarity on what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And then when you come to me with a clear strategy, hey, I am looking at properties on the south shore of Boston or the east side of Buffalo. This is the criteria I'm looking for, right? I know you've been through, lack of a better word, level one of my program. I know you've, fundamentals. Of, you've been through the fundamentals. I like that. Yeah. So I'm able to work with you. So I love projects where it's like, so, you know, I don't like corner people into, hey, this is, I only work with people like this. No, that second level working with me is you have an interesting project as it pertains to real estate, due diligence, analyzing a property, creating a marketplace for yourself, uh, a real estate agent that wants to stand out. Absolutely. I'll work with you on that. And then my last offering, which is really where my sweet spot is, is I will work with clients who are seasoned real estate investors that own portfolios, small, you know, probably 10 to two, 300 units in smaller portfolios, mm-hmm. but, and they have a property manager or they're self-managing it, but they're dissatisfied with that, that portion of it. And they want to create vertical integration. They don't want any leakage of income in their business. They want to create their own property management solution. That's where I come in and I go soup to nuts, turnkey operation for them to have build their own property well, management business. I'm, I'm going to be there in a couple of years. <laughs> We're going to be working together. Yeah, we, I'll we will build that together on this show. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I do. I believe to achieve. All right. Well, um, I thank you for your time. How can people get in contact with you? Okay, a couple of different ways. Instagram, which is how you got a hold of me, Cordell, uh-huh. right? My, uh, my handle on Instagram is at how much will I make? Hashtag how much will I make? So if you search that, you'll get me on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Francis Fernando on Facebook. Uh, if you um, email me, Francis at FrancisFernando.com. My website, uh, Francis at Francis, uh, FrancisFernando.com. Uh, multiple different ways. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm everywhere. Just Google my name. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll look forward to next time we, we hook up, we can chat and um, learn from each other. We'll learn from you. I don't know what you learned from me, but I'm, I'm learning a lot from you. But once again, thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time, Francis. And oh, I appreciate it, Cordell. Cool. And everybody, like I said, go to the website, smallapartmentinvestors.com. I am constantly trying to fill that website up with a lot of content. See you later. Bye. Take care. All right.